Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast. This is episode number 106. We're here tonight with Rob Boston, who has been working to keep church and state separate since I was in middle school. He's really smart on these issues. I'm, I feel very privileged to get the chance to talk to him. He will be coming uh, here to Oklahoma City on Constitution Day, September 17th. And you can find out more about that at okau.org. All right. So we're here tonight with Rob Boston, Director of Communications uh, at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. So Rob, you're coming out to Oklahoma City in a couple weeks. You're going to give us a talk about your new book? That's right. I have a new book out. Uh, it's called Taking Liberties, Why Religious Freedom Doesn't Give You the Right to Tell Other People What to Do. And I'll be discussing the themes of that book. Uh, you know, Basically, this sort of idea, this attempt at redefining religious liberty as a tool to oppress others, which I find to be a disturbing trend. So I'll be talking about that and what we can do to combat it. That, that is a, uh, a theme that you revisit in your book over and over. You talk about the parameters of what religious freedom is and what it means and what it should mean and what it's often taken to mean. Can you can you expand a bit more about what, what you think it should mean and how people are trying to twist it? Absolutely. Well, historically, you know, religious freedom has been an individual right, highly prized right, of the American people, and, and rightly so. But it's the right to make decisions for yourself, to decide what house of worship, if any, you want to join, what prayers, if any, you want to say, what religious books, if any, you want to read, uh, the right of parents to expose their children to these beliefs, to uh, send them to a religious school with their own money, that sort of thing. Uh, but lately, there have been people arguing that religious freedom really is a device that they can use to get out of following laws that everybody else has to follow, mm-hmm. or, or uh, to, uh, as a tool to impose their dogma onto other people. I think we've seen examples of this recently in the birth control cases and some of the controversies that uh, have been in the media lately and have reached the Supreme Court. So uh, my, my argument is that we really need to get back to what I would call the historical understanding of religious freedom, which is the right to make these decisions for yourself, but not to make moral decisions for other people. Uh, other than the Hobby Lobby cases, which um, which I think you just alluded to, wh- what are some other good examples of when uh, someone tries to use religious freedom as like a, a sword against someone else as opposed to a shield for their own practice? Well, I think a lot of the cases we're seeing right now dealing with the role of religion in public life fall under that as well. Consider, for example, uh, the recent ruling by the Supreme Court in the town of Greece, New York, about prayers before council meetings. Mm-hmm. People made an argument there that they had a religious freedom right to sponsor these prayers, even though it was being done by the government on behalf of everybody in the community, and not everybody in the community agreed with those Christian prayers. We hear that argument used, the religious freedom argument used in disputes about religion in public education. People arguing that uh, they have the right to have prayers, even though they uh, may be imposing them on the unwilling. They have the right to teach creationism. Uh, there are arguments like that raised in disputes over religious symbols on public property, the Ten Commandments of the courthouse, crosses that supposedly represent all of our war dead when we know a cross doesn't do that. People always making these arguments. Well, it's religious freedom, it's religious freedom. Well, again, if we get back to the proper understanding that it's an individual right, not a corporate, not a government right, I think we can see that uh, how, we, how we've kind of gone straight here. Now, in the town of Greece, haven't they done some things to try and uh, fix the problems of it just being a Christian prayer being done? 
Well, in Greece, they're they're really kind of, I think, up to no good. Uh, shortly after the, the ruling came down, and that was in May, they, the town did agree to allow a non-believer to offer a secular invocation. And this gentleman, uh, his name is Courtney, Dan Courtney, he went and he did that. And it was actually a very eloquent statement, a very nice statement, uh, not offensive, certainly didn't attack or criticize anybody else's beliefs. He called for unity. Yet after that happened, they came up with a new prayer policy, one that was written for them by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a prominent religious right legal group. And this new policy seems to make it difficult for non-believers to have that right in the future, to participate alongside religious groups. There is some dispute about how far it goes. And, and of course, it's a very legalistic statement, so it, it, it's open to interpretation. But certainly the idea that all these communities are going to be open to hearing a non-religious invocation uh, is probably a bit naive. In some parts of the country, that will be greatly resisted. What would you say is the ideal solution in a, in a situation like like Greece or like any number of city councils that want to do invocations before uh, their meetings? Is, is the best thing just to avoid that altogether? I think the best thing is to avoid it altogether. Any official government-sponsored prayer should always be avoided. Now, if mm-hmm. the members of a town council feel the need for some sort of divine guidance before they have their meeting, they're free to meet in their chambers. All of those that want to meet can gather. They can have their prayer or Bible reading, whatever they want. But then when they're going out and representing all of the people, find that uh, the court has allowed these types of prayers. We need to find a way to do this now that is inclusive and, and that encourages participation by everybody and doesn't just always favor the Christian majority. Okay, so uh, on, on something that's a, a more complex case, like, like Hobby Lobby, where uh, there is no there is no solution where we just opt out of it. I mean, there's, we've got to find some way for people to get their reproductive health covered um, by insurance. Um, how, how do we how do we move forward on a, on a case like that where you've got these employers who say, you know, we absolutely uh, like Roman Catholic employers have been saying we find it revolting the idea of having to pay for any form of birth control. You know, I thought we had a pretty good solution to that in, in that we were uh, going to allow these third-party providers mm-hmm. to come in and uh, give that those services to employees who wanted them. But they rejected even that. They argued that even telling the government that they did not care to provide contraceptives was a violation of their right of conscience. I mean, it's, it's remarkable to me. I, I, I make the argument, it's kind of like, imagine if you were a Jewish person and you were in prison and you wanted kosher meals. Well, the prison's willing to give them to you, but you have to ask for them. But if you <laughs> refuse to ask, you can't be accommodated. Uh, same situation here with, with, with Hobby Lobby and some of these other, especially the, the nonprofit religious groups. The government was more than willing to accommodate them by uh, having a third party provide the contraceptive. But they didn't want to even be involved in, in something as simple as writing a letter or filling out a form saying we don't want to provide birth control. They argued against that too. I feel like that's a point that's really been lost in a lot of the media coverage, that that some of the briefs on some of these plaintiffs are actually arguing that they have a religious right not to fill out forms that exempt them from having to pay. What's happening here really is that these groups are angry about the way most people live their lives now. They're, they're basically angry about the sexual revolution. They're angry over women's liberation. They're, they're angry over the fact that their clerics don't call the shots anymore. 
So they're looking for a way, basically, to deny as many Americans access to birth control as possible. That's really what they want to do. If, if, we, if they really wanted to resolve this matter, we could do it tomorrow. But that, that's not what they want to do. They want to put roadblocks and barriers in the way of people's access to birth control. And, you know, we, we've been down this road before. It was a hard-fought battle to win the right to access birth control. You know, it was illegal in many states, even for married couples, to buy birth control devices in the 1950s and 1960s. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court ruled in the Griswold case. So what people need to understand is that the history shows how hard we had to fight for this right. And we shouldn't just lightly uh, give it up because a couple of people are you know, stuck in, in the Middle Ages. I think that's absolutely right. We have seen uh, a lot of recalcitrance uh, and to the point to where I, I've become skeptical. I try to be charitable and assume that these are really genuine religious convictions that are driving what's happening on the other side. I try to be as charitable as possible. But when you get to that level of obfuscation, you, you get the sense that this really isn't about their religious conscience so much as trying to impose their agenda on everyone else. I think so. And, and I would argue, too, that in, in the case of some of the Roman Catholics, who, you know, historically, Orthodox Roman Catholics do oppose birth control, although something like 98% of women in the Catholic Church use it. But there's a small remnant that's opposed. But historically, evangelicals and Protestants haven't opposed birth control. I mean, they may oppose abortion, but they haven't opposed birth control. Yet here, some of them are jumping on this as well. And I have to really believe that a lot of this is just political. They don't like President Obama. They don't like the idea of government being involved in health care. They're basically uh, shills for the extreme conservative political movement. So they've jumped into this for political reasons, not really for matters of conscience. But when you go before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court basically tends to take your word for it. If you say something offends your conscience, they don't really probe into that too much. They just accept it. Yeah, if you say that you're a sidewalk evangelist and you're trying to do real personal one-on-one conversations, they're going to go ahead and take you out of your word. Well, yeah. I mean, in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, some of the things that, that, uh, that the owners of Hobby Lobby said that they believe are scientifically and medically inaccurate. They believe, for example, that some forms of birth control cause abortions, which is proven medically that they don't, but they believe it. So the court says, well, that's enough. It doesn't matter if your belief is wrong. As long as you sincerely believe it, you'll say that. So how do you know that, what makes you think, I'll put it that way, what makes you think that they're not true believers and that they're just doing this for political reasons. I think some of them are true believers. Let me clarify that point. There are some individuals involved in this who, who really are uh, sincere in their, their opposition to birth control. I think some of the um, very conservative Roman Catholic groups, they're, they're sincere. Uh, my, my belief, however, is that some of the evangelical Protestants who have come into this are just doing it because they don't like President Obama. They don't like the government doing anything. They have aligned themselves with the extreme far right that's very anti-government, uh, and, and, and that's why they're involved. You know, as I mentioned a moment ago, historically, these individuals have not had religious objections to birth control. Their pastors told couples it was okay to use it. Uh, they didn't preach against it. They did not uh, advocate to block access to it. Yet here they are basically trying to do that. Uh, th- there's been this movement over the past couple of years to kind of forge a... Um, I guess you'd call it a united wall of, of orthodoxy, bring together the orthodox wings of the Catholic Church, the extreme, very far-right, evangelical Protestants, uh, even members of very very conservative Jewish sects, 
uh, and, and members of, of some other denominations to sort of create this, this united force of people who see themselves as standing against the modern world. So I think this type of uh, legal case shows the beginnings and an attempt to forge that coalition. Huh. That really frightens me, <laughs> to, <laughs> to be frank. Um, I kind of liked it when the Protestants and the Catholics didn't get along and, and didn't uh, unite against us secularists. Well, you know, they've been trying to, to unite for a long time, and I think it's always going to be a little bit difficult because you do have two movements that don't agree on theology, and both of them are convinced that only they are interpreting the Bible correctly, and, and uh, of course the Protestants, the religious right Protestants, don't, affect, don't accept the authority of the Pope. And, I mean, there's doctrinal differences that are serious, and there have been a bit of a barrier to them. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about forming a coalition like that, but it, it's eluded them somewhat. But I think one thing that's, that's really sort of bothering them right now is the kind of rapid evolution of social thought in this country. You just consider, for example, the issue of same-sex marriage, which I think a lot of us have been surprised how quickly attitudes are evolving in that area and how quickly the legal landscape is changing. I would not have thought we'd be at the position where we are right now. You know, if someone had said to me 15 years ago, you think same-sex marriage will be legal in you know, whatever number of states it's legal in and be accepted by more than half of the American people, I don't think I would have said, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. But here we are. Attitudes have evolved pretty quickly, and they're very frightened by that. So there's this reaction to kind of you know, drag us back to this, what they see as a more traditional time, but it's really one that where they, where they call the shot. I think that's interesting because... Um, for a while, at least in my opinion, uh, have relied on the Supreme Court justices to um, rule in their favor, believing that um, you know they were on the side of uh, personal freedom and, and, and situations like that. And then now, that's just not there quite the way it was before. Is that how you see it too? I think you have a good point there. Uh, we were pretty fortunate for a long time in the 60s and the 70s. We had a Supreme Court that was strongly in favor of church-state separation. It handed down you know, key rulings on issues like school prayer and government aid to religious institutions uh, that, that, that formulated these good tests that protected the separation of church and state. But that began to fall apart in the 80s during the Reagan presidency when the court became more conservative. And the, the Clinton years weren't really enough to, to really bring it back entirely. And then, of course, the Bush presidency really changed things because he put uh, Chief Justice Roberts on and Justice Alito, and that swung the court over. You know, the Supreme Court obviously has an important role to play, but we can't completely rely on it or lower federal courts. We have to make the case for separation of church and state and bring it right to the people. They have to want the principle. They have to understand why it's important and, and all that it gives us. If they don't, then it it really doesn't matter what any courts say, support for that principle will erode. I wanted to ask about what kind of issues we're facing. We've talked about reproductive freedom, and we've talked about some of the what I would call the symbolic cases, where it's like uh, God in the Pledge or uh, ceremonial deism in the form of prayer before football games or before city council meetings, those sorts of things. Uh, what are the other uh, major issues that you talk about in your book? Well, we, we really are facing a, a number of, of, of issues. Some of the sort of traditional church-state issues that you've mentioned are still very much alive. The proper role of religion in public education. How do you teach about religion without proselytizing? The constant threat of creationism, which rears its head in any number of states, including Oklahoma, on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and also, too, there remain questions about to what extent government can give tax aid to religious schools and religious institutions. The Supreme Court upheld the voucher plan some years ago, but many state constitutions have very strict language in them, barring the diversion of tax money to religious schools, and, and we are seeing litigation under those provisions. In fact, there was a ruling recently in Oklahoma about that that uh, was favorable and struck down the voucher plan. So there have been mm-hmm. uh, a number of, of those types of disputes. Uh, and you mentioned some of the ceremonial uses of religion. Those are very active, too. This controversies about under what circumstances the Ten Commandments can be displayed or a cross at the seat of government. Uh, so we, we still have you know all of those church-state issues percolating along, but right now, sort of underneath all that, is this attempt to redefine religious freedom that we've been talking about that I, I really see as one that has the potential to impact a lot of the emerging social issues we've been talking about. And by that, I mean things like not just same-sex marriage, but to what extent owners of businesses are going to claim a right to refuse to serve certain people based on their sexual orientation. Uh, and, and also that opens up a lot of questions. What other types of people can a business refuse to serve? Can they refuse to serve an atheist? Can they refuse to serve a Jew? Can they refuse to serve uh, a Muslim or a Buddhist? I mean, you, know, you just keep going on and on about this. If people get these exemptions that they can make, where does it stop? How far do we go with this? And that, that I think, is really going to be the major church state issue of the next decade. Yeah, because if you do apply what how they've ruled in the Hobby Lobby case uh, consistently, then you know that those doors do uh, start to crack, like you said. There are, there are a number of cases in the lower federal courts, both in the states and in the federal system, dealing with this question of the rights of LGBT Americans and especially same-sex couples. In the states where same-sex marriage is legal, there are people saying, "Well, I may, you know I own a." Uh, photography studio or a bakery or a catering service, and I'm not going to serve those couples. I'm not going to rent my facility to them. Uh, and, and, and even in some states, uh, government officials trying to make that argument. For example, that they're not going to give a marriage license to a same-sex couple. I mean, it's remarkable that you would have government officials making that argument. Uh, yet, uh, here we are. So, the, the Hobby Lobby decision, as much as the justices try to pretend like it's narrow and only applies to the facts of the case, that's, that's never the case with the Supreme Court ruling. These lawyers are going to look at that what, and ask what broad principles have been established and how can they push the envelope. So we definitely will see more litigation in the years to come over these questions. Yeah, I found that odd because usually Supreme Court uh, rulings are, are used as precedent for lower courts. Uh, am I right about that? Yes, you're exactly right. And so why would they act as though... What they do doesn't, I mean, it just seems like, like you were alluding to, is that they were just trying to find a way to rule in favor of Hobby Lobby, you know, and ignore the idea that it would be used as precedent when we've always done so. Well, that, that was a very disingenuous decision on many levels. Uh, Justice Alito wrote in, in the majority opinion, implied that there was an acceptable compromise that could be fashioned. And uh, then just a few days later, in an unsigned order, the court seemed to go in the other direction, implying that this so-called compromise that had endorsed two days ago wasn't really so great after all. Uh, that decision is going to leave legal scholars and activists shaking their heads for a long time, trying to figure <laughs> exactly how far it's been. And I will tell you, it, a lot of things depend on the next few years and what type of justices end up on the Supreme Court. There, there are bound to be changes on the court. 
some of the justices are getting up in years and they just won't be on forever. Uh, and uh, who replaces them? What type of justices replace them? Could determine yeah. the direction of the court for the next generation, really. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is never going to retire. She's going to live forever, and it's just <laughs> never going to happen. She's great, but, uh, you know, she's had some health issues, and she is getting up there in years. And also, too, some of the other justices. I mean, I, I go down to the court sometimes to observe the oral arguments in church court cases. And, and uh, you know, you can see the, over the years, just like all of us, age does take a toll on these folks. So uh, inevitably, we, we, I think over the next, say, eight years after the Obama years ended and we can go into a next uh, presidency, whoever that is, that individual is going to be naming some replacements, no doubt. That's, uh, we had Eddie Tabosh here uh, in Oklahoma to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about in 2012 in July. And since at the time the organizers of Free OK, we didn't have any 501c3 issues uh, at any level of the organization, he could say whatever he wanted to say. And he just basically went on a tear about how the, the, the Supreme Court uh, is going to be shaped by, you know, in the next four to eight years. I mean, it absolutely matters who you vote for right now. Like the whole, a whole line of cases, uh, several lines of cases are on the line right now. Right. Well, you know, we, we are 501c3 organization, and we're not allowed to involve ourselves in partisan politics to the extent that we can't tell people or advise people who they should vote for or against. It's mm-hmm. a matter of judicial nominations, we can speak out. We can oppose a judicial nominee if we don't like his or her philosophy. Now, we have to be careful about saying to somebody, you know, you should vote for a candidate, uh, this candidate or that candidate, on the basis of what type of people they might put on the court. Right. But certainly we can acknowledge and recognize the importance of the judiciary as as an issue. I, I'm surprised sometimes that even among generally well-educated people, how they don't necessarily make that connection. Uh, federal judges, not, not just at the Supreme Court, but at the lower court levels, are nominated by the president, and then there's a vote in the Senate, and only the Senate. So it's an up-and-down vote. 51 votes will get the candidate on the bench. And the lower court judges are important, too, because most cases don't reach the Supreme Court. They are resolved by a so people need to be paying attention to that as a campaign issue. It's odd in this country how it never really quite catches on. Mm-hmm. You know, some recent campaigns, candidates have tried to make it an issue on both sides, but that never really catches on with the people. They, they, they're more interested in pocketbook issues, which I can understand those are important. But the composition of the judiciary is extremely important because they have the final say in these things. And also, I mean... More and more, the justices are being uh, nominated when they're pretty young, you know, late 40s and 50s, and then they have that for a lifetime, so they could be on there for 30, 30 plus years. Yeah, so, no accident. Yes, absolutely. Uh, presidents are interested in leaving a stamp on the Supreme Court, so they're looking at uh, judges who are you know, relatively younger, as you point out, maybe 40s, 50s, in the, hope, in the hopes that they'll be on the court for quite a while. Um. What do you think is, right now, what one particular church-state issue do you see as most pressing in the lead-up to the midterm elections? I really think that um, this issue of the definition of religious freedom is, is the most important. And it's one that um, all the candidates, no matter what party they represent, should be forced to address. Uh, as I've mentioned, I think this is going to be the most important church-state issue we are facing as a nation for the next several years, simply because it impacts 
so many other questions. Same-sex marriage, gay rights generally, access to birth control, and other health-related issues. And we have to remember, it isn't just birth control. When, when your boss wins the right to deny you certain medications or certain procedures based on his or her religious beliefs, that, that, can, that can go pretty far. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in blood transfusions. They think that's a sin. So could a, a Jehovah's Witness boss refuse to pay for any kind of surgery because it might involve a blood transfusion? Or uh, say your, your boss was a Scientologist, and Scientologists have well-known beef with the psychiatric profession. Mm-hmm. Cut off your, your uh, counseling, psychiatric counseling, or your uh, psychiatric medications, which a lot of people rely on these days. So it, it, it's... You know, people often argue when we, when, we, when we say that, oh, that's the slippery slope. But the slippery slope argument isn't always invalid. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Sometimes the slope really is slippery. You're really on the slope and you're sliding and you don't know where you're going to end up. We, we have seen that in action. And I mentioned vouchers earlier. The, the, the voucher case was a perfect example of the slippery slope. The court just kept building and building and building, allowing little types of aid and a little more type of aid and a little bit more. And then eventually, up oh, full-blown vouchers because they cited all those previous cases. So the slope was definitely slippery, and we slid right into full-blown vouchers. Well, that makes sense. Like, they keep piling precedent on top of precedent, and all of a sudden, you have a strong case. One thing about this court that I've noticed is that they're, they're a little bit reluctant sometimes to do something, like, really, really crazy right off the bat. They, they build toward it a little bit, and they work toward it, and then they just drop the ball. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we're seeing in some of these cases. You know, chipping away a little bit here, and then they add to it a few more years later, and then finally, boom, there goes the whole thing. So we definitely need to be aware about, of that and, and not just um, dismiss that argument, as some folks do, out of hand. Sometimes the slippery slope works in our favor. Like um, Scalia wrote in, in the dissent to um, Lawrence v. Texas. He's like, well, once once we say that sodomy is a, is a – and he, he called it that – is a constitutional right, then we're, you know there's just a slippery slope down from here to gay marriage. It turns out there was, you know, like yeah, a lot of courts did did cite Lawrence v. Texas. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, you know, I, the, the court should be respecting precedent. One of the problems I have with this current court is that they 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 really don't respect precedent. They are certainly willing to throw precedent out the window or pretend that it doesn't exist. If you look at some of the religious freedom cases we've been dealing with, for example, you know, there is precedent about certain types of exemptions being given to a limited number of exemptions being given to religious groups in certain very specific cases. For example, the Amish. The Amish don't educate their children past the eighth grade. So back in the 70s, the court said, well, that was okay. You know, They don't have to do that, even though most states require education beyond the eighth grade. We're going to give the Amish an exemption because they have a different way of living and they're providing you know, trades and other types of, of education for their children. It was only affecting them. And, and generally speaking, those types of accommodations have been accepted because they affect only people who voluntarily choose to live in those religious communities. But now they sort of have expanded the idea of these exemptions to the point where they're affecting third parties. And that's where I think we have to draw the line. I'll give you another example. There's a case coming up before the Supreme Court that we argued this fall, and it deals with a, uh, a prisoner in Arkansas who wants to wear a short beard. And the Corrections officials are arguing, oh, no, no, you can't wear a short beard. You could hide things in that beard. Now, we're talking about like a quarter-inch beard. That's a very short beard. <laughs> Meanwhile, they'll let a guy have hair as long as he wants, and uh, they don't require them to cut it. And you could obviously hide things more easily in a you know, massive head of hair than you could a short beard. 
So there's a case where you could argue, and we have argued, that it's reasonable to give that prisoner an accommodation because that is really only affecting him. Uh, and we're trying to make that distinction before the Supreme Court. The exemptions that basically affect an individual that are involuntarily adopted, that's one thing, but these so-called exemptions that affect the rights of third parties have to be looked at a lot more skeptically. So, so to take uh, the example that I think was the the motivating case behind RIFRA, behind the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, if if a, a Native American religious group wants to use an otherwise banned substance to alter their state of mind as part of their ritual, is that the sort of thing we should get behind as a reasonable exemption? Well, I think you can certainly make that argument that, again, this is a voluntarily chosen practice that individuals are engaging engaging in for a bona fide religious reason. It's not a threat to the larger society. It doesn't affect the rights of third parties. The exemption may very well be reasonable. Mm-hmm. But in that case, of course, as you know, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, if, if there was a law that was otherwise neutral, it didn't single out religion, everybody had to abide by it. Now, we could have lived with a standard like that, too. Uh, but some people weren't happy, and that was sort of the genesis of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You know, that was legislation that was I think signed into law around 93 or 94, nobody would have thought back then that it was going to turn into uh, the thing that it has become. But, you know, that that's kind of the one sort of interesting aspect of this whole discussion. The Hobby Lobby case rests not on the First Amendment, but on this act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right. That law could be changed, modified, or overturned completely. Now, it's obviously not going to happen in this Congress. But uh, that may be a future activity worth pursuing find a way uh, to modify that law so that it gets back to what it was originally intended to do, that is, protecting the rights of minority religions, not giving fundamentalists a, a big club to beat everybody else with. Well, that's a perfect example of something that started out well-intentioned to protect a religious minority yeah. in, in exercising the, yeah, their own uh, individual religious freedom. That's how it started out. And then it turned out to be a, a cudgel for employers to use to control their workers' sex lives. Yes, exactly. And as I said, nobody could possibly have conceived back in the 90s that, that there would be use for that. If, if anyone had even suggested such a thing, the group supporting it would have all just collapsed. Nobody would have backed that. So, uh, well, you know, it, it's an interesting lesson sometimes maybe in the dangers of uh, looking at legislative remedies in this area. If someone had suggested sure. it back then, people would have dismissed it as a slippery slope argument. That's right. yes. <laughs> and that would have caused it to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to um, okay school vouchers. I've always been on the um, on the edge or uh, in the center of this because I feel as though school vouchers, you know, what people pay in their property taxes and uh, it goes towards your public education. And if you have a kid, public education. It seems right that you could take those same funds that you're paying in property taxes and use them towards private schools. Now, what is the, uh, the you know, a uh, the legal reason why you say, or the separation of church and state reason why you say we should not allow these vouchers to go through? Well, the vast majority of private schools are religiously affiliated. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's, it's very high. So that's essentially a way of funding religious instruction with taxpayer dollars. And that traditionally has been the objection to vouchers, and that's why so many states have language in their constitution saying that uh, there'll be no funding, public funding of religious institutions. Now, their right to exist, of course, is, is well established, uh, 
I don't think they should be excessively regulated by the state. I support anyone's right to patronize those schools. But I don't think you have the right to pass the tuition bill you know, on to other individuals. I guess an analogy I would make would be that uh, there are lots of government-provided services that some people choose to duplicate. For instance, uh, some people don't use the public library. They buy their own books, but they don't right. get a tax break to buy even more books. <laughs> we're, all exactly. expected, we're all expected to support some of these public services, whether we use them or not. So like it, it seems almost okay, but when you think about public services, you don't have a pool of money. Like It doesn't matter that a, you know, a person with a bigger house and more expensive property, they pay more taxes, but they send their kid to public school. It doesn't mean that their kid uh, you know, has a, a bigger pool of money to use in their education. They all, they all use the same amount of money. So, yes, okay. I mean, all, uh, there's a certain amount of, you know, per people spending that most districts or, or, or states have, and that number may, you know, vary a little bit from year to year, but it, it is a, it is a, you know, a per people formula. Well, one of the, 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 the sort of things we also kind of need to, to keep in mind here is that um, the public education system has always served something like 90% of the kids in the country. And even in states where, where vouchers have been offered, in Ohio, for example, they've had a plan there for a couple of years. What they're finding is that the interest level isn't really as high as what they had expected. I think a lot of people are realizing that these private schools play by different rules. For instance, they don't have to even accept your child. Or they can accept the child, and then if they, for some reason, don't feel the kid's a good fit, uh, they can kick him or her out. Uh, so they are really sort of playing by a different set of rules, yet they're increasingly demanding public funding. My view is that if they get any public funding, they should be required to meet a lot of the same rules and regulations that are imposed on public education. That makes sense. We've we've had some in, interesting runarounds, or end runs, I should say, uh, attempting to get around the voucher problem by saying that we're going to give taxpayers special exemptions on what's collected. So if you are, you know, say you're paying a, a big wad of property taxes every year, uh, we're going to give you a cut on that. We're going to give you a tax break on that so that you can send your kids to uh, a, a private school instead if that's what you want to do. And so the money is, in theory, never actually collected by the state. It's never controlled by the state. And so the the idea is to try to do letter of the law, avoiding the school voucher problem, because you know we do have uh, a constitutional amendment here in Oklahoma that says you can't you can't send state tax dollars to religious institutions. Yes, actually, there have been any number of schemes. Uh, there, there's one that's really popular now in some states where corporations and businesses are uh, encouraged to make a donation to a so-called scholarship fund. And then they get like a massive tax break, something like 85 to 90 percent of the tax break on that money that they've donated. And that money is then parceled out to send to, to private schools. Uh, going a little bit deeper here, which I think we always need to do with some of these issues, you have to remember that. Public education in this country is a huge, I mean, a huge amount of money is spent on that. Figures run into the billions. And there are forces that would like to privatize that and get their hands on that, just as there are forces that have tried to privatize everything else in this country. People who generally don't believe in the idea of public services. So, so they like to get a piece of that. Uh, the interesting thing is that people are resisting that. In states where vouchers have been put on the ballot, they've always been voted down. A couple of cases, people even, when a law was passed, 
people went and put the matter on the ballot and repealed the law. So I think people are very aware that the public school system is very important to, to our country. And that if we start to go down the road of privatization, we're just not sure where we're going to end up. It sounds like you're not as worried about that one, um, about losing that one, because we've got basically the voters on our side on that. Well, I'm concerned about it because the voters can only do so much. There are a number of states where, for various reasons, legislatures got elected that were extremely conservative and are pushing ahead with this. North Carolina is an example. Uh, Indiana is an example. Also, in some states, the charter school concept, which started out as a, you know, a pretty harmless idea to uh, expand the boundaries of public education a little bit and, and bring some non-traditional schools into the mix, but still public. That's being abused. And some of those are now being run by religious groups and are teaching some philosophies and ideas that are very problematic. And they're trying to root those out you know, one by one. But that can be very difficult because sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what's going on in some of these states. Uh, we had a recent dust-up about that in Arizona where the school was the charter school, which is getting tax money, which is the public school, was teaching these crazy ideas from some you know, nutty Glenn Beck-endorsed book, <laughs> American History, that, that's just I don't, around the bend. So we really have to watch out for that sort of stuff. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I understand that there's a desire for some folks to reform because there are problems with the public education system in some parts of the country. But some of the reform that's being proposed is really just an attempt to either privatize or, or depublicize, I should say, public education, move it into some other type of way. So have you, have you heard about our, uh, our Ten Commandments monument here in Oklahoma? Yes, I've read a little bit about that. <laughs> We've got two separate lawsuits going, uh, one with Bruce Prescott in the state courts and another with our, our friend Amy Breeze in the federal courts. Yes, well, those cases have been falling all over the map, depending on a number of factors. How old the monument is, who put it up, where it's displayed. They tend to be very fact-specific. It's interesting you should ask about this, because I was just uh, doing some research about this uh, for, for something I was writing. And um, a lot of these Ten Commandments monuments in some, some states, they go back to the 1950s, and they were mm-hmm. placed in some of these states by the fraternal order of the Eagles, and it was all part of a publicity stunt. <laughs> Cecil B. the Mill movie. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in Texas, people people think that this was um, you know, some sort of thing that goes back to the time of the founders or whatever, or you know, <laughs> it has some great history and some great tradition. And it was just a publicity stunt for a movie. Ours, ours here is a copy of the one in Texas, which itself was part of that big publicity push. Well, so it, we've got basically a fifty-year-old movie uh, <laughs> trailer in granite at our capital. <laughs> There were about 2,000 of those placed around the country by the Fraternal Order of the Eagles working in conjunction with Cecil B. DeMille. And in some states, they would have actors who appeared in the film come and unveil the monument. Oh, I would love to see that footage. Yes, I haven't actually seen any of it, but I've, I've read about it. You know, it all started with uh, it was a state judge in Minnesota who got it into his head that the way to combat juvenile delinquency was to forced these kids to read the Ten Commandments. So his idea was to post the Ten Commandments on paper in all of the courts that served um, juveniles, so all the juvenile courts. Because we know these juveniles are totally into adultery and murder. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it, it just strikes me as, you know, people historically in this country, have, people have always fallen for the idea of the quick solution you know, to a complex problem. <laughs> My guess is that these juvenile delinquents were probably coming from broken homes or bad experiences and... Uh, Somehow, just forcing them to read the Ten Commandments probably was not going to solve all their problems. But this guy thought it would. 
Mail <laughs> got wind of this and said, "Hey, we can expand on this. You know, we can give you better than just a paper copy. We do big granite copies." Oh God! But our copy is—I mean, our copy is new. It was—it was installed very recently, but it is a copy of the 50-year-old Texas monument. A badly done copy. A badly done copy with typos. Yeah. There were a number of of them in more recent times too uh, that that people got you know into their head that they'd like to put up. I don't know how much of this was inspired by Judge Roy Moore in Alabama. I'm sure you remember the infamous oh, yeah. judge mm-hmm. successfully sued in court. Uh, but uh, after his little antics down there, other individuals, instead of learning the lesson that that probably was not a good thing to do, the lesson they took from it was, uh, let's go ahead and put our own up. <laughs> Some people, I guess, just like to be sued. And it, well, you know, rebels. And they're, they're using, like you said, the Cecil B. DeMille publicity stunt they're using it as well precedent like they're saying it's part of the tradition you know supreme court allowed that that uh that 10 commandment statue to stay in the fairgrounds because it's been there for so long and now it's part of the tradition and so you know our legislators are kind of copying that idea and and relying on that court decision to leave it up there yeah that that was that was not one of the court's better decisions and uh it has had uh, some negative fallout. There was a ruling recently in North Dakota, in Fargo, where an appeals court allowed a Ten Commandments monument to stand. But there was another court ruling in New Mexico where a court struck it down. So it really kind of depends a lot on individual factors of where it is, who put it there, whether other types of displays are allowed. Actually, that's one of the, I think, the more interesting aspects of this dispute. Will you allow other types of things to be displayed? Because once you open that door, of course, in this country where we have a lot of smart alex where people are coming <laughs> in their flying spaghetti monster statue and their festivus pole and their satanic symbols and all the yeah, kind of stuff. They're yeah. Bethany with a nice lap. Yeah. yeah our last our last interview with was with a Satanist here in Oklahoma and uh, they talked about how the Satanists in New York called them and said, Hey you guys want to help us put up a statue at your capital. Right. Yeah. Which was awesome. I mean that will have been awesome if that if that happens. I could be I could forgive a Ten Commandments monument if it's surrounded by a crazed menagerie of different religious symbols. I think that'd be so entertaining. You know, we had a situation sort of in one of the outer suburbs here in Virginia a few years ago. At Christmas time, this community was allowing religious groups to put up a crash. So they they decided they'd have a free speech zone. That was their way to get the crash up was to have a free speech zone. And of yeah. course, like I said, you know. People, people like to have fun with things like that, so they started putting up all these other types of displays, and some of them were, were, were pretty out there. Uh, and and what, what was really sad about it was that this was a public park. People were coming into this park and removing some of the displays they didn't like, and just completely intolerant and completely outside the spirit of free speech. So the community decided that they would kind of move away from that idea. But they tried it for a couple of years, but it just became unworkable because you had all these different displays up, some of which were were, were pretty aggressive in their message. <laughs> I, love I don't. I don't think there's there's nothing wrong with a, a Festivus pole made of beer cans, man. It's not aggressive. It's very laid back. You no, know, that was pale compared to some of the things I saw in this town. I mean, obviously there were limits on what they could do. You couldn't do anything obscene and all that. But there were just some things out there that were, I thought they were fairly amusing, but some people just uh, didn't have much of a sense of humor about this kind of thing. So it kind of got ugly. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's strange. I mean, honestly, I think it's really strange that in like where we live, there's churches on every corner. And you could put up a Ten Commandments monument in like every church lawn, 
You could put up a giant cement cross on every church lawn, and no one's going to complain. You know, there's all these places you could put up a Ten Commandments monument or a giant church, a giant cross, but they want it in like the one place, like the one place that's supposed to be free and open to anybody of any religious faith. Well, that really is the answer, of course, is that you can put these religious symbols, whether it's a crash or a cross or a Ten Commandments, on every church lawn in town. And it looks natural there. You know, you expect to see it there. It, yeah. it doesn't even fit on City Hall steps, but they always want to do it there because it's a way of basically saying, in your face, uh, this town likes our religion better than yours or your non-belief. You know, it's, it's kind of like the old mom likes me better than you argument. It's incredibly immature. I, I it's, yeah, it's crazy. And, and this is a religion that starts off with, like, the very first parable is two people that eat the one fruit that they're not allowed to eat. Like, it's the one place you're not allowed to put your sacred monument in all of town. You're acting like... <laughs> Adam and Eve, you're, you're giving in to the one temptation you were told not to do. You know, there, there, there are ways that you can do these things temporarily. For example, like I said, if it's, if it's a true free speech zone, some communities, like especially in the holiday season, I think the Wisconsin State Capitol does this. They'll say, well, you know, you get a couple of days here, and then this group gets another couple of days, and then the third group. So you might have a crush for a few days, then you might have a menorah for a few days. And the Freedom from Religion Foundation puts up a display for a few days, you know, and so on down the line. Everybody gets a shot at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really want to go down that road, it, it's possible. But everybody just has to be mature enough to realize that these are privately erected displays. They're put up by private groups with their own money, and nobody's always seeking any state endorsement. The problem with some of these groups is that state endorsement is what they want. You know, they're, they're stuck in basically the, the Constantine the Great way of that there should be a favorite religion the state has, and hey, and it's mine, not yours. So you know, so I'm going to show you. Right. Yeah. That's that is exactly that's what it comes down to. Is they're not really looking to just display their piety or their values. They're looking for state endorsement of that. Well, there's a message behind that. Yes. Yes. As I say, and the message is that uh, our religions must be better than yours because the state likes it. And what's really funny about that is it's kind of sad about that. And I think a lot of Christians realize why that's pathetic. The, 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 the church has, has never functioned well as, as a tool of the state. <laughs> when when these two institutions sort of get together, it's usually the church that ends up on the short end of things, especially in the modern era, where the state is a very powerful institution with a very far reach. Do these fundamentalists really think they're going to end up on top on that situation? Probably not. More likely, they'll end up as a you know, state-kept church, as we've seen in Europe, and look what's happened to those churches. They're steadily eroding, falling by the wayside, because that's not what people want anymore. They want to free... Nobody's talking about you know the amazing, world-spanning evangelism of the Church of England. Yes, I, it, it, it's very remarkable. In fact, there was even one country, I'm trying to remember where it was now, it was one of the Scandinavian nations, where the state church asked to be disestablished, because they felt that it was a last-ditch effort to, to get some juice going. Wow. So there are some clergy now who are even realizing, you know, a thousand years of state establishment hasn't really helped us here. <laughs> no. No, I mean, judging by the massive decline of, of religiosity in Europe, I think I think it's fair to say we've got the experimental results in there. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the one thing you could say, and scholars have studied this for years, is that uh, official establishment. They're not helpful to the church in the long run. And, you know, a lot of what groups are asking for in this country, I think, is an official establishment and everything but name. Mm-hmm. This favored status. They want access to your tax dollars. They want their symbols to be erected in the seat of government. They want their dogma to permeate public policy. 
Now they may say, oh, no, we don't want to be the official church, but essentially everything but. I think that anyone who is really on the fence about these issues or curious really just needs to read unbiased history on these issues. That, that's the one area that I get a little discouraged about in America sometimes. People seem to not know their history as well as they ought to. If you read our history of uh, this issue, you, you really, fair, I think, to be fair about it, you've got to come to the conclusion that it was a good thing for us uh, because it ended the conflict and the tension and the violence that had erupted in this country because so many of the colonies or early states didn't have established religion and did imprison people or punish them for what they believed. Our founders like Jefferson and Madison put a stop to that, and I just I mean, find it hard to believe that people think that that was a mistake. You pointed that out in the very beginning of your book about how there was a massive transformation from the original Puritan vision for what these colonies would be to the secular constitutional democracy that we eventually ended up with. Right, and you know the Puritan vision was rejected for a reason. It wasn't working. Mm-hmm. The Salem witch trials and the Quakers who were hanged on Boston Common, people being put in the stocks and guys being thrown in jail because they picked up sticks on a Sunday. All right. these crazy stories that are part of our history. We look back at them now and, and, and just scoff, but well, that's the vision that they had. They had a vision of a theocratic state. The founders looked at that and said, you know, that doesn't work. We have a better way. And it, it is remarkable to me that there are people today who side not with the founders, but with the theocrats. I think the way you phrased uh, the or the way that you've uh, made the setting for our government's beginnings is different than what schools usually teach because it's usually um, our government is in contrast directly with the Church of England and and that part is true but like what you said we did have that strong uh, presence of the the uh, I guess you couldn't really call it a state but the people in charge of towns and, and, and small villages were also the clergymen, and so and and that was rejected. So it's not just that we rejected the Church of England, but we also rejected our early colonists. Yeah, we, we really need to do a better job of that. A lot of people will say, well, you know, the, the Puritans came here for religious freedom. Well, that's only half the story. They came for religious freedom for themselves. Everybody else, they, they didn't want to spend religious freedom to them. And, I, and I'm always amazed at the number of people, you know, again, even, you know, sometimes pretty well-educated people who don't know about Roger Williams and some of their yeah. early struggles mm-hmm. uh, to, um, to free the, the, the heavy-handed people from the heavy hand of the theocracy in Puritan Massachusetts. Uh, it, it just, it, it's a fast, the thing about it is, what's so sad about it is, it's a fascinating story. Uh, not only is it true history, but it's interesting history. And I think it would engage a lot of people. And it's deeply patriotic history. Like we didn't invent the idea of uh, a parliament or even a bicameral parliament. You know, we didn't invent the idea of checks on the executive. Those are all British ideas. But we did invent the idea of strict separation of church and state. <laughs> That's a genuine American innovation. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, I'm not aware of, of any country that that tried that to the level that we did. I mean, there was toleration in some countries, but you know, toleration is just one step along the way. It's nice, but it, it's not enough on its own. And, and people like Roger Williams and John Leland and others do that. So uh, we we need to kind of kind of get back to that idea that it is in fact a very patriotic thing. I often tell people on the religious right, you know, occasionally if I get argue, into arguments with those individuals, your argument isn't with me; it's with James Madison. Right. <laughs> You're really arguing with James Madison. Who they, you know, in other contexts refer to as a hero. Yeah, they, they think he was, you know, some kind of 
fundamentalist Jerry Falwell in a positive <laughs> way he was talking, you know. Nothing could further from the truth, believe me. He was stricter on separation even than Thomas Jefferson, Madison, father of the Constitution, author of the First Amendment, probably the strongest advocate for separation of church and state we've ever had in office. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but, I mean, it does seem like um, liberals and, and people on that side of the political spectrum kind of seed history to conservatives. While conservatives, they, you know, they, they are seen as more patriotic and therefore hold on to history, but they, they, they have skewed the facts about history. And we've just kind of let them do that as, as the liberal yes, side. Um, it's, there is, it's like progressives are always looking to the future. Well, <laughs> there, there are people trying to fight back against that, um, this sort of bogus Christian nation history that the right wing has right. created. Uh-huh. There are a number of books that debunk that, written by real scholars, people with actual credentials, as opposed to you know David Barton, who is not a historian and does not have any advanced degrees and got his sole degree from Oral Roberts University. Uh, Woo Yeah, that's an Oklahoma institution people, right there. People listen to him instead of you know say somebody with a PhD who's you know been teaching for forty years uh, has studied this stuff extensively. Uh, so that's that information is out there, but you know I've come to the conclusion that it's just as people will ignore all the scientific evidence in favor of evolution and embrace creationism, even though it's patently absurd. There are people who will do the same thing with history simply because it's a comforting lie that makes them feel better about their world, and that's very difficult. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't really know much about the, but is punk rock a big part of your life? I listen to some punk bands, sure. Yeah, yeah, we've got to end on that. What, what's your favorite punk rocker? Dead Kennedys. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay, we're bad religion guys over here. I like yeah. religion too. <laughs> I'm older than you guys, so I kind of go back. I was I was a teenager when punk first came to America. The Sex Pistols came and all that. That that changed everything. Believe me. I mean, we've been listening to bands like Kansas and Six and Foreigner, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> punk came in and just. Blew all that junk out of the water with an incredible energy and vibe that uh, I think still reverberates to us today, even though you know we original punkers are getting up in years. That is an insight that I was not expecting to have tonight. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> so we look greatly forward to seeing to meeting you in two weeks on the seventeenth of September. Yes, exactly at the uh, Bell is it Bell Isle Library at the Bell Isle Library here in Oklahoma City at the annual meeting of the Oklahoma chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. 7 o'clock, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I will have copies of Taking Liberties there to sell, so if anybody would like to get a book, it will be possible to do that. Yep, Jim Nimmo has them right now. Yeah, he has the box of books. Yes, we shipped them out a little early. Okay, well, we, we really look forward to it, and thank you so much for talking with us tonight, Rob. My pleasure. Take care, gentlemen. Have a good night. Thank you. you. The Oklahoma Atheists Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake.
and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music and the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented in today's show, please visit our blog at blog.oklahomaatheists.com.